if you need need to go, then do go. But um, otherwise, we can kind of hang and do some prayer for one another off the end of this one. So thanks, Rich, so much. Hello again. Um, do at any point, if you see me and you want to talk about anything I've mentioned, come and find me. Some of you have done that in the break, which is great. Um, priority number three is prayerful dependence. Daniel and his friends, I would argue, knew the importance and the centrality of prayer uh, for all that they were called to be and to do as exiles, as these people trying to live out a faithful presence. If you grab your Bibles, turn to chapter 2 of Daniel, there's this crazy story, and the whole book is crazy, isn't it, on one level, but there's a crazy story in Daniel 2. King Nebuchadnezzar starts having these dreams, these really vivid dreams, spiritual dreams, it would seem, that really trouble him. And so he summons, we're told, uh, all his magicians, his enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Kind of very new agey, isn't it? Um, Polytheistic, mixed bag, uh, pick and mix spirituality, very much like our culture. Um, And he basically wants them to help him work out what the heck's going on. So it says in verses 10 through to 16, because he's nasty Neb, um, uh, he sets some very clear ground rules. What he wants them to do is both tell him what the dream was, so he wants them to show how they, they, they the interpretation, because they also know what his dream was. So he doesn't tell them what the dream is, he says, go and find out what the dream was, and then give me the interpretation, and if they don't, uh, he's going to cut them into pieces, uh, and uh, turn their houses into piles of rubble. So kind of no pressure, all right? Um, and even those wise men, it says, recognize the limits of human wisdom. And essentially they say, that cannot be done. So they stand up to him as well. And what's interesting uh, is that Daniel's not here at this point. We'll come to that in a moment. Neb and his Outrageous, outrageous um, claim leads him to get so cross when he's told no one can do it that actually he decides, uh, because of that response from his wise men, okay, fine, I'm just going to execute you all. So he's got a temper problem, I would suggest. <laughs> Might need to see a counselor. Um, all the wise men, he says, okay, fine, I'll start again. He's so cross. And Daniel hears about this. So Daniel and his friends aren't there. They hear about this. Now, his extraordinary bravery and courage. Rather than kind of going, this is our moment to just, you know, quietly back out, <laughs> go to the beach. Um, what he does is he actually goes and finds out what's going on, asks um, one of the courtiers, tell me what's going on. Why is he so cross? Having heard all of this, getting the explanation, he goes to Nebuchadnezzar confident in the favor he has with him, I would suggest, and uh, says to him, I can interpret the dream. Now remember the end of chapter one, God gives him spiritual insight, it says, gave him the ability to discern in the spiritual, the dreams and all that sort of stuff, the prophetic stuff. So Daniel knows that he's got this gifting and this calling, this anointing from God that, remember, comes from holiness and obedience The public anointing always comes out of the personal life, the holiness behind closed doors. So he goes to Neb and he says, I think I can interpret the dream. Give me a bit of time. Don't kill us all just yet. 
Let me see what I can do. Then notice what he does. Verse uh, 17 of chapter 2. He goes home to his friends. Remember, they've got their Hebrew names. And they pray. Now, I kind of imagine he goes home and he's like, guys, just put down what you're doing. Kind of got us into a moment. I need you to help me. But uh, they pray. And they pray because in that moment, that's all they can do. The limits of human wisdom have been met. He's now like, I'm totally dependent on you, God. I believe you've placed us here. I understand what's, what you're wanting to do through us. I get why this favor. I get why you've gifted us with spiritual insight and wisdom. This is, it's for this moment. Because actually what's at stake here isn't just his life. It's everybody's life. What's at stake here isn't just like, you know, the court, it's actually the whole empire on one level is at stake. How do we diffuse this outrageous, um, you know, empire leader who's basically lost the plot and is unreasonable? Sound familiar? Well, with spiritual warfare, actually, ultimately. And the answers to the questions that Neb is asking come out only when um, Daniel prays and speaks to God about this stuff. So they, uh, they pray together. Discernment happens in community. Spiritual discernment happens in community, uh, which is why, you know, there's never any just one person who leads a church. These guys have built a team around them, a really good team. They discern together with you what God is saying and doing. We do this together. So he goes back and he's like, guys, I can't do this on my own. We're not meant to do it on our own. We've got to pray and we've got to pray in complete faith and dependence on God to do what only he can do. God does the heavy lifting always when we let him. Part of our problem, part of the reason we don't always see the things we want to see in our own lives or in the life of our church or in the world, I think, is that we don't put ourselves often enough into that place of prayerful dependence where the only way it's going to happen is if God does something. Because we like to control. And we like to kind of protect ourselves from failure and disappointment. And so we end up in that vortex. Remember that we talked earlier about um, control, fight, withdraw, compromise. We, we do all of these things to try to sort of manage the situation. Daniel chooses to put them in this position where they have got to depend on God. He didn't have to go to King Neb. He could have just kind of prayed for protection, but he's like, no, no, front foot. I'm going to contend in prayer for this kingdom uh, in such a way that God's kingdom can come into it. So you and I are called to be on the front foot in prayer. Not just praying, oh, God, protect us, God, help us, but actually, God, show us. Help us see, help us discern, so that we can inhabit in such a way that we can bring something to bear on this reality. It's interesting to me that Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. How does Jesus know what the Father's doing? Where does he discern that? Well, it says he withdrew to pray over and over and over again. Jesus Step by step, as he works out his earthly mission, withdraws to be with the Father. Time and time again, the disciples are like, where is he? You know, all these people want to be healed. Jesus has disappeared again. He's gone up a mountain to pray. What's he doing? He's trying to discern, what are you showing me, Father? Because I only do what you're showing me. Is that our posture? Individually, collectively? And, and choosing in prayer, prayerfully 
making ourselves prayerfully dependent on God to show us what he's wanting us to do. Not in response just to things happening to us, but also so that through those things, something different can happen. So we can shift the atmosphere. We can create these pivots where it goes from sort of negative spirals of conflict and decline into something positive, healing and redemption and restoration. I was hearing quite a lot about some of the ministries you guys have got. Those are interventions in, the, in Babylon, trying to usher in through those activities things that will change people's lives from captivity to addiction and debt and you know, shame and brokenness into restored humanity. But we do those things in response to what we believe the Lord is saying and showing us. Not just our wisdom, because that's limited, but this divine, in, this divine inspiration. Does that make sense? So Daniel um, puts himself in this position and they pray. And God gives him both the dream and the interpretation. Of course he does, because God can do all things. So Daniel goes to see King Neb, uh, verses 26, 28 through to 28. He gives him the dream. Now, interestingly, notice what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, have you got the, have, have you got the ability to do, to do this? And he's like, no, it's my God that showed me. So not only does he kind of bravely go and sort it, but actually he then gives all the credit, all the glory to God, which again is brave because he's putting himself up there as kind of like, hey, it's not about me. It's, you know, how often have we been in those moments where we're like, oh, God, I just name it. Got to give the, the glory to God. It's not me. It's the Lord at work or at home or whatever. It's weird, isn't it? It's hard. And then skip to verse 46. We'll skip the actual dream and all of that. But notice again the effect. Favor. Daniel's promoted. He becomes ruler of Babylon. He becomes essentially the prime minister. And he's put in charge of all those other wise men that opted out. We can't do it. Suddenly, he's in charge of everything. Because the king sees what God's done through him. He's like, of course he's going to raise him up. You'd want, wouldn't you want Daniel on your side? Like... You're trying to kind of dominate an empire. But it means that Daniel's got even more favor, even more influence. Some of you will be able to tell stories, I'm sure, of those moments where because you've been prayerfully dependent on God, because you've put yourself in this position where God has to do it for you and through you, that actually you find yourself with more influence as a result, more leverage. Let me tell you a quick story. A friend of mine, uh, she's uh, in our church. She, a uh, newly qualified teacher, started working at the local primary school, came in to see me a couple of weeks after starting, uh, just like, it's, she's like, it's so toxic in the staff room. So, so toxic. And uh, it's just like really demoralizing, you know, what am I doing? And uh, I said, well, she said, what should I do? I said, well, why don't you pray? Remember that, that our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's with the powers. So what's playing out in the classroom? Well, an expression of Babylon, ultimately. I mean, I didn't, Suggest she goes and says that to the head teacher. <laughs> That's so weird. But I said, why don't you pray and see what's going on? Like, ask the Lord to show you why is it so toxic? Because it's expressed in, you know, low morale, people being negative, all of that sort of stuff. It, it all came to head over the milk in the fridge, which is what it always comes down to, isn't it? You know. <laughs> but actually, it's not about the milk in the fridge. It's about something deeper. So she prayed. And the Lord gave her some real insight into a couple of people who were, who were actually with a, a kind of the, 
the perpetrators, the players, subconsciously, unwittingly, because of their own stuff. They didn't realize, but it was displaced pain. And so rather than confronting them, she did two things. One, she decided to go and love them. The, the difficult people, she just got to know them, she prayed for them, she came alongside them, she encouraged them, she took them out for lunch, she got to know them and realized that actually they were just, they had so much going on in their lives because what the Lord showed her, words of knowledge. She didn't say, God show me this, she just asked lots of questions around that and, and you got to know them and love them into life. And then the other thing she did is she decided she was going to supply the milk. <laughs> so every Monday she came in with milk and every Thursday she came in with cake. And by the end of the term, guess what the staff room was like? And then someone, the head teacher, said to her, brought her into her office and said, um, can you explain to me what you've been doing, please? <laughs> and she's thinking, oh, heck. You know, and she's like, wow. And she said, Rich, I remember her telling me, she said, Rich, I, I realize I've got to give God the glory. So I said, well, I came in and you're not in the staff room very much because you're the executive head of this multi-academy trust, but, but it was actually quite toxic. And I could see it as someone who was new. And I'm a Christian, and I started asking God to show me what I could do about it. Faithful presence. Very simple, but this is, illustrates the point. We can land it in those kind of stories, can't we? And, and, and God showed me, she said, of some of the things that were going on in people's lives. And so I've just gone about trying to be a real encourager and to befriend people. And I realized that actually everyone's really stretched and and, and actually, I thought one of the things that breaks the camel's back seems to be the milk. So I just brought the milk in. Um, but it's all, it's all God. It's for God. I'm just here to serve. You know, I believe that God loves us all and he wants the school to be amazing and to thrive. And the head teacher apparently just looked at her and went, that's <laughs> Would you be interested in becoming the assistant head? It's favor influence now she said you've actually got to do another year <laughs> before i can allow allow you to do that within i don't know how education works but she is now the assistant head because of how she took responsibility and and, and was a faithful presence in that she's an amazing teacher but she's transformed the staff room does that make sense okay prayerful dependence is where it began she did it in what's god showing her what's he wanting to do so uh, similarly, there's a story in Daniel 6. So turn over to Daniel 6. This is um, the famous Sunday school one, right? The lion's den. But actually, it's not really just about lion's den. Uh, backstory real quick, chapter 6. There's a new king, Darius, also known as um, Cyrus. Two names, long story. Persian king. So new empire, Persian king. Similarly, like Neb, not a nicest man. Daniel continues to have God's favor and king, the king's favor. Um, but notice verses 4 and 5. The satraps, which is... A, um, so Daniel 1 and 2 are written in Aramaic. Then it cuts back to Hebrew. And then it cuts back to Aramaic. Long story again as to why it's written in two languages. But here we're in the Hebrew bit of Daniel. Satraps is the Hebrew word for wise men. Okay, they get jealous and they try to find a way to get rid of him. Because he's a threat to them. Remember, he's the one that's now in charge of all of them because of his outrageous kind of <laughs> faithfulness to God and dependency on him and all that favor that comes from his prayerful in insight, etc. So they're threatened by him, they're jealous of him, and, and they look for a way to get rid of him. Uh, think about Jesus 
and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. What do the Pharisees do? They're threatened by this rabbi who is bringing something different to bear in their world. So what do they try to do? Find a reason to find him guilty, to get him out of the picture. It's the same thing. Um, <clears throat> so the only thing it says that they could find fault with Daniel on was his faith and how he practiced it. That's the only thing they had against him. Wouldn't it be great if the only thing people could have against us was the way we trusted God and worshipped God and outworked our faith with such integrity and character and humility that actually that's the only thing they could find fault with. You might be like that, but I can tell you I am nowhere close. So, um, so that's what they do. They trick Darius into passing a new law that forbid anyone from worshipping any god other than Darius himself. Uh, and he signs it into law. Um, and then uh, notice what happens. Daniel realizes this effectively is persecution. What does he do? Verse 10. He went home, and the same as last time, he prayed. He goes home and he prays. Prayerful repentance. He's in this moment. It's like, Lord, only you can do something about this. And notice where he prays. He goes upstairs to his room where the windows faced Jerusalem, it says. Now, in those days, you wouldn't have had glass. You would have had a smallish window and probably some sort of like wooden shelter to keep stuff out. But you'd be, so you'd be able to see out, but you wouldn't be able to see in. If you've been to sort of the Middle East and places like that, you'll, they still do that because it's warm. So he's looking through his window and he's praying towards Jerusalem. But even though he can't see it, his heart posture is towards home, towards Jerusalem, towards, in his mind, that's where I belong. Ultimately, that's where I will return. He thought in his earthly life, now we know in the fullness of time, to the new Jerusalem when Jesus returns. His heart is set still on the temple, which is the epicenter, the physical epicenter of their faith. And he's still looking for the promises of God. He's still trusting in Yahweh. That was his practice, it says. It says, we're told, he did that three times a day, as he had done before, is the phrase. So three times a day, he prayed, facing Jerusalem. So he goes home, having been told, this is what's going to happen. They're trying to get rid of you. and They're trying to stop you from worshipping your God. And he does what he always does. He doesn't just suddenly start praying because he's in trouble. He's in trouble, so he goes home and keeps praying. Does that make sense? Um, it's too late to start praying big time if, if you haven't been praying all the time. So this is consistent with the pattern of prayer that would have gone on in the temple. Now remember, the temple's been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. So the temple's not there. But in his mind, it's still there because it's symbolic. It's more than the building. You know, which is why Jesus says, you know, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. It's not about the actual temple. It's about what the temple represents. And so as he always did, he prayed three times a day. He's about to be thrown into the lion's den. He's about to be persecuted and executed because of his faith. And he goes home and he prays. Psalm 55, I think this will come up on the screen. Notice this. This is David. As for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. It's that, it, that was the pattern of prayer for the Israelite people. Three times a day. It's from which we get morning prayer, midday prayer, night prayer in our tradition as um, Christians. 
Verse um, 29 of 1 Kings 8. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day. Now that's written in the context of exile, 1 Kings. So may your eyes be open towards this temple night and day. It's a heart posture. It's a dependency thing. It's a faith thing. Daniel looks to the temple in his mind's eye because it represents God and his focus is on God. He's fixing his eyes on Jerusalem. Friends, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And he who started it will complete it. He's faithful. It's the same thing. Do you see that? The same idea. So this is something that's really, really important and huge for us to miss. It's prayerful dependence, but it's prayerful dependence that was a daily norm for him. So he's like, okay, today... It looks like they want to chuck me in the lion's den. Lord. But we all have lion's den moments, don't we? Not literal, but we all have moments where we're like, ah, this is really hard. I'm, I, something's coming against me. I've been falsely accused. Or I'm in a situation where I'm out of my depth. I don't know what to do. Or I'm in this scenario where I'm, tr- I'm desperately trying to pray something for my kids or my family or my friends. And Lord, only you. And so here's my question for you. Do, do you have a daily pattern of prayer. Daniel had this intentional daily approach to his faith. He practiced it every single day, and prayer was central to that. I think if we're to thrive in Babylon, if we're to be a faithful presence, if we're to sustain that meaningfully, we have got to pray. And we've got to pray more individually and collectively. And I said last night, any move of the Spirit in history has always been birthed in and sustained by the prayers of the people of God. We contend in prayer for an awakening, a move of the Spirit, but we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray until something happens. And so I want to suggest that we need to be developing a set of spiritual practices that help us stay rooted in God, help us pursue that holiness we've talked about, help us pursue and live out that faithfulness we've talked about, to be these people called to be faithful. Spiritual formation happens through the spiritual practices. They don't do it for you, but they put you in that place of intimacy and dependency on God. So Daniel, it's his instinct. It's his muscle. It's his spiritual muscle memory. Pray. That's what you do in these situations. Um, William Paulsall says this. He's a spiritual writer. It is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives. But there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. So let me advertise my seminar at half past four, ladies and gentlemen, where we're going to talk about this. Dallas Willard, the great spiritual writer, says, there is no formation without repetition. If you want to become formed into the likeness of Christ, who Jesus would be if he was you, that's what that means, the Christ-like version of you, fully, truly, newly human. It happens through formation, spiritual formation and transformation, counterformation to the culture around us. And it happens through repetition. We are what we repeatedly do. So if you want to become more like Jesus, get up and pray. If you want to become you know, someone that he can use more often, put yourself in that place of prayerful dependence. You know this. I'm just reminding you. And it matters on two fronts. Yes, that spiritual formation for us, us becoming who God called us to be, the redeemed version of ourselves that we've been saved for. So we're saved from sin and death, but we're saved 
before life in eternity. And there's a transformation that happens. We put on the new self and we live into that new identity that's bestowed upon us, redeemed for us by Jesus. But it's also about spiritual authority in and for the world, this mission of God that we're on. And spiritual authority in the public place comes out of spiritual intimacy in the personal place. That's where it comes from. God raises you up. This is why Jesus says, when they say to him, teach us how to pray, it's not Jesus teaches how to pray. What they're really saying is teach us how to pray like you pray. Because the way you pray is different to the way we pray. And he says, what does he say? Go home, close the door. Our Father. It's in the personal place. And it's not just in the personal place, but it must start there. And what happens is when you pray in the private personal place, and then you gather with your friends and your brothers and sisters in the, in the church prayer meeting, you, you, you add to that. We become the sum total of our parts. But if you want spiritual authority in and for the world, in the classroom as a new qualified teacher, or whatever it looks like, you've got to be praying, facing Jerusalem. Prayerful dependence, not my will, but yours. Father, show me what you're doing. Help me make sense and see. Jesus says to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you're forever seeing, but never perceiving. You're forever hearing, but never understanding. He's talking spiritual discernment language. Perceiving with spiritual eyes. Understanding with spiritual ears. Seeing as the world really is, that battle going on behind closed doors in the heavenly realms. That's where the authority comes from. To speak in the name of Jesus, to act. When we, when we pray and minister in the gifts of the Spirit, I believe in all the signs, miracles and wonders. They're unto the redemption of all creation. They're signs, they're moments, they are literal wonders. It makes people wonder. What? It, what? Oh, really? Like miracles of healing are not the temporary suspension of the natural order of things. They are the restoration of the natural order of things. And that the authority to go for that comes out of that prayerful dependence on God, that spiritual intimacy. Daniel, uh, we see this again in Daniel 6. Um, when he's, uh, sorry, we see this in, uh, later on in Daniel 6. He's thrown into the lion's den. Now, what's going on here? That they're trying to isolate and persecute and remove him. And it, and it says, Daniel tw- uh, 6, 21 to 23, Daniel escapes unhurt, verse 23, because he had trusted in his God. So here's what we have to have faith for, is that when we do what God has shown us to do, when we say, okay, well, we only do what you see us doing, we don't question it as in not to do it. We might question it, but then we trust. And we go, okay, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit, which is what Jesus does in the garden, okay? Not my will, but yours. Like he lays it down and he's raised up. We, we put ourselves to that point where it's only you, God. So here's Daniel in the lion's den, but he's prayed. That's the difference. So he's prayed. And because it says, because he trusted in his God, God protects him. Daniel escapes unhurt. He extends grace to Darius. Notice that. And then here's the effect. Again, favor, influence, ever building. So verse 25, there's a new decree, which is the inverse of the old one. The decree was, you know, the law he'd been tricked into signing is you can't worship anything other than Darius himself. And now it's like you have to worship Yahweh. It's like full 180 degree flip because of Daniel. Does that make sense? Because he's been in this position where God's been able to do something outrageous. Flip the switch entirely. The narrative changes. 
I say all of that because I'm really convinced that in this moment, and we'll say a bit more about this tomorrow, the church, if we're called to do what we're called to do, we've got to learn to pray more. We're really good, actually, particularly in our bit of the church, at doing strategies and vision statements. We're, we're pretty good at, you know, gatherings, and you guys are absolute ninjas at weekends away. <laughs> you know, and we're capable, competent people. And we can come up with all sorts of great plans, but what we've got to be saying is, show us what it is you're doing, Father. And we hold it all lightly, and then we go and we see what happens. Does that make sense? Okay, final priority, a little bit quicker, and we'll build on this tomorrow. I'm going to slightly change gear, because this isn't really in Daniel so much, and it is, but it's implicit in Daniel. It's more woven through other bits of the scriptures as well. I want to argue that the fourth priority for us is an intentional engagement with the reality on the ground. We've talked about that idea of engage, haven't we already? Five options, fight, withdraw, control, compromise, or engage. I think uh, you and I were called to meaningfully, intentionally engage with the world that we're in. And, us, and, and Daniel does that. We don't hear those stories because we hear these crazy spirit stories, Holy Spirit stories, really, is what they are. Um, but we're called to intentionally engage. David Kinnaman, who's done a lot of work on this, his book, Faith for Exiles, is really worth getting hold of. Um, he, talks, he says we're now in a digital Babylon, a... Um, a 21st century version and kind of escalated because of the digital world. So is Facebook Babylon? Discuss. Um, social media. His research concludes there are four kinds of Christians in the world today. Prodigals, so ex-Christians, 22% apparently. Don't know how they know this. Nomads, so lapsed Christians, 30%. Habitual churchgoers, 38%. Resilient disciples, I love that language, 10%. And his thing is, it's the resilient disciples that will be the ones that God can use powerfully to change the world. Uh, and he talks about five distinctives of resilient disciples. They're the ones that do this faithful presence thing. Five distinctives. We've looked at three of them already. Vibrant personal faith, holiness, commitment to Jesus at all costs is one of the distinctives. Second is that they're culturally discerning. They know when actually... They've got to actually choose which story they're going to live in because that's the story they live out. They remain faithful to God. Third is that they're dependent on God, prayerful dependence. So we've covered those three already. The other two are commitment to authentic community. Beyond this, so your small groups, life groups, whatever you call them, they're, they're unto that. They're that, that smaller cohort. And then the fifth is they're intentionally engaged uh, with the socio-political cultural world that they're in confident engagement, that involved distinctiveness, that meaningful presence in the world. And, and that's what I just want to kind of quickly speak into, and as I say, we'll build on it tomorrow. The research has shown that those people who develop meaningful relationships as the people of God, where you hold each other to account, uh, where you pray for one another, where you confess your sin because you're pursuing holiness in community, where you know how to feast as well as fast, where you kind of champion each other to go for those crazy dreams, where you have prophetic words for one another because you've tracked with each other and you're, you're in it together. Those are the ones that are, are more likely to find it easier to and want to really consciously try to engage with the world, with the classroom, the staff that we're in, like my friends. 
Because it's out of that context of community where you're rooted and established and knowing that you've got the confidence and the courage and the backing to go and do it. Kind of, we know that, don't we? You know? Um, so notice Daniel 2. Daniel returns to his house and explains the matter to his, to his friends. Uh, this is, you know, we've looked at that story. What they think is that they all live together. Daniel and his friends living in community. They're, they're, they pray together three times a day. That very intentional community. My friend John Tyson, some of you have come across him, he's based in New York, describes this kind of community as a creative minority. He says this, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together. That's the prayerful dependence, all that stuff. Together for the renewal of the world. I love that. A creative minority. A minority, resilient disciple, tiny number of us, but creative, choosing positively to engage. And I love his phrase, stubbornly loyal relationships. Like, I'm really sorry, but you're stuck with me now until the return of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Because I'm so for you. And I'm so for what we're all about, that we're going to do this together. Have a look around. Like, brothers and sisters, it's beautiful. Do you have stubborn, loyal relationships? Daniel and his friends do, I think. And one of the key texts that you will know that was a paradigm text for the exiles is Jeremiah chapter 29. I think there's a slide for this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, this is the instruction. This is how you meaningfully engage with your cultural moment. Uh, beyond, the, beyond all the other stuff. Uh, the outworking. You know, holiness, faithfulness, prayerful dependence leads you into this kind of engagement. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Side note, did Daniel build the house that he prayed in? know marry and have sons and daughters find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which i've called you into exile i've called you into exile for as long as you're there seek the peace and prosperity of the city pray to the lord for it because if it prospers you too will prosper god puts us in this world and says you're here to serve it alan scott's phrase is you know will you wash the feet of your city Exeter and the hinterland, that's been entrusted to you. For as long as you're called to be there, here's what you do. You build houses. And that's not literally build houses. It's not about mortgages. It's about making it home. Committing to your postcode, your street. Creating a space in which people can do life together. Plant gardens. That is more than just you know flowers. That's about cultivating, creating. It's what you guys are doing with your stuff. It's about using the physical space to to create healthy culture, spaces in which people come together and thrive, eat what they produce. It's, it's about commitment to the place in such a way that you become rooted and established there. You become part of the fabric of the city. A measure, the only measure I have for All Saints Worcester is that, you know, in terms of how well we're doing is, would the city miss us if we shut down overnight? If the answer is no, then with all due respect, I don't think we've done Jeremiah 29. Individually and collectively, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. So a question has to be, how? 
how do we do that? But Daniel and the exiles, that's what they did. One of the reasons why they didn't all go back to Jerusalem when under the Persian Empire they were allowed to, Nehemiah does. You know that story, Nehemiah asks for permission to go back, rebuild. Some of them do, but some of them don't. They stay because they've made it home. And it thrived, and they thrived there. Why? Well, because God says, if you, if you seek the peace and prosperity of the city, you'll prosper. And you can bear witness to the things of the kingdom there. So um, those of you who are students, um, I want to encourage you to be saying, if you, when you think about finishing, I, I'd say to you, ask the Lord, should I be leaving Exeter, or am I still meant to be here? There's a cultural norm that says, well, you do your degree, and then you go and get a job somewhere. And that might be what God calls you to. But actually, the biblical landscape is stay, commit, somewhere. Find somewhere, find your bit of Babylon, and stick in there for as long as you're meant to be there. And so it might be that some of you are going to be called to stay. And, and I say that because often what happens is that churches really grow when particular demographic groups commit and stay against the cultural norm. There's a better job in London. Of course there is. There's more money in London. It's actually harder to pay your rent in London, side note. <laughs> but, like, and I get that, but actually what would happen if you guys all stuck it out for longer and really committed to Exeter for like the rest of your life? Daniel never went home. He chose to engage with the world he's in, the people he did life with. This melting pot of people and extraordinary things happened. I'm saying that because I want to try and envision you as Exeter Network Church. I'm going to pray in a moment. It's like you've been entrusted, not on your own, but as part of the church in Exeter, with the coming of the kingdom into that space. And, it, and it's worked out when you together, holy, uh, faithful, prayerfully dependently, commit serve, engage, create, cultivate, inhabit. You know, stick it out in that school, stick it out in that office, work out your profession, your vocation, and do more than just be the shiny, happy Christian in the workplace. Think about, and we'll talk about this tomorrow, think about how you can bring the kingdom to bear in and through your work. Shift the culture, shift the values, shift the strategy, so that the things of God can happen in and through you. Transforming the lives of people, bit by bit, bit by bit, bit by bit. Uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu famously said, it's great that the church, you're, you're dragging people out of the river downstream because they're drowning. Uh, that's social action, and it's massively important. And we'll look at it again a bit that tomorrow. But he said, someone's got to go upstream and work out why they're falling in in the first place. Who's pushing them in? Babylon pushes people into the river. So we've got to have people who inhabit politics and education and the arts and industry and all of these sectors and spaces, not just at the downstream bit, but upstream as well. It takes a long time. It, it takes a lifetime to change a city. So here's the question. For, are you called to be an exeter? If God's not called you somewhere else, stay. Stay. You will know his favor you will be part of a story that's extraordinary. I'm going to finish with this little quote. Madeleine Longel, who's a French uh, philosopher, she says this, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. 
but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. The way people see it is by how we live in the land. Does that make sense? Daniel, we read all about all the stuff he did, but this is what he did through his, his work. They committed. They made it home. And they lived out their values in such a way that it became more and more normal there, the things of the kingdom. And that's what happens when a church commits to its city, really, which is what you're about. I know that's the vision. Um, so there's a picture here of a show home. I always think uh, the church is meant to be a bit like a kingdom show home. You know a show home on a new housing estate? They build that first. They furnish it beautifully with the best dishwasher you can find and all of that. And the idea is that you come and you see what life would be like if you were to buy a house on this housing estate. And people who are the early adopters, they buy off plan. They're so captivated by the vision of, oh, yes, if I buy into this. So we're a kingdom show home. People are meant to look at us and go, ah, oh, I see what it's going to be like when God has finished what he started. Through the way you live out your lives together, I see, I taste that the Lord is good. Yes, I'm in, and people buy in. That's how it happens. But it doesn't happen if we don't meaningfully engage. Does that make sense? Okay, well done. Um, What I'd love you to do is, um, if you're, is t- one of two things. Either turn to two or three other people around you, two, two people max, twos or threes. Um, what has struck you the most this morning for you personally? Or if you're like me and you think, I just need three minutes on my own, feel free to just kind of do this. <laughs> and that's code for don't invite me to join in this conversation. Introverts, we unite together in a different room. Um, Uh, Just want you to buzz. What has struck you? What is the Lord showing you, speaking to you, exciting you? What's made you kind of, ah, yes, go for it. And then we're going to pray. Go.